Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're actually going to be looking at a fairly large section of Scripture, Mark chapter 13, 1 through 37. Probably be a little bit longer recording than sometimes, but we have to take this all together because it's one unit of thought. And so let's just set it in context. It's Passover week. And the week leading up to the crowning moment of Jesus' life, namely his crucifixion. And Jesus has been spending his days teaching in the temple. Mark 13 is the last major teaching block in Mark's gospel. It stands in parallel to Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And the parallel with Luke there in chapter 21 is actually very helpful because since Luke is writing to a broad Gentile audience, he frees up some of the unique specific Jewish language that we find in Matthew 24 or Mark 13, and that helps us see the point. So that means in some ways, Luke 21 really provides some keys to understanding both Matthew 24 and our chapter here, Mark 13. Now, before looking at the details, we need to note that most of Jesus' teaching here is first and foremost about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in A.D. 70. It's not about the second coming, even though that's what oftentimes can be assumed at our first kind of glance reading. That assumption comes from just reading Matthew 24 or Mark 13 really quickly, kind of at a surface level, and not really paying attention to the setting and the context in both Gospels, or reading it like a first century Jew would. And so we need to make sure we pay attention to the topic here in Mark 13 too. And then again, the parallel with Luke 21 is just so helpful because Luke's version makes it obvious what Jesus is talking about. So let's get the flow of the context and then we'll jump into the details. As I noted, it's Passion Week. On Sunday, Jesus had ridden into the city of Jerusalem as king. On Monday, a couple days before Mark 13, Jesus cursed a fig tree and chased the money changers out of the temple, both prophetic actions that announced judgment on the temple. Then, in the previous uh, day's discussions, there was a series of questions from the authorities uh, and the temple leaders. Well, now, at this point in Mark 13, Jesus leaves the temple for the very last time in Mark's gospel. And he gives really what is his climactic teaching in Mark's gospel, and he gives it to his disciples. And he warns them of the temple's destruction, uh, the failure of the temple leadership, Israel's leadership, the, the failure of Israel to fulfill its mission to be a light to the nations, its lack of fruit, right, with the whole cursing of the fig tree, its, its hostility, the leadership's hostility towards Jesus as Messiah, all of that really pronounce or lead to Jesus pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. He did that with the fig tree. He did that symbolically by chasing out the money changers. Now it's going to show up in his teaching to the disciples. And so that's the main topic here. Some of what Jesus says, however, sounds like it points forward towards his return. And so scholars wrestle with, how do we sort that out? What is there? Is there stuff in here that's goes beyond just the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Or is it all about that? And so scholars wrestle with that. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Nevertheless, the main focus here is on the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as judgment on Israel for her failure to really live out her calling as the people of God. Here's the way that unfolds. As he was going out of the temple... 
13.1, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And so this particular disciple is just admiring the grandeur and the beauty of the entire temple complex, the whole uh, massive thing. And it was massive. It, it was actually not 100% done, and it was still being completed in Jesus' day. Herod the Great had begun the project, and in essence, he had built like huge retaining walls to flatten out the top of the mountain and create a huge platform uh, on which the temple itself sat. And it was actually the largest temple complex in the entire Greco-Roman world at the time. It covered 36 acres. It could hold more than 25 football fields. The western wall alone, which is partly visible today, and we know it as the Wailing Wall, the western wall alone ran 1,575 feet. Uh, the height varied because of the topography of the land on which they were built, but at its highest point, the wall stood about 160 feet high. And the walls were right around 15 feet thick. Just think of that. These were massive retaining walls to build this huge 36-acre complex, this platform, on which these buildings and the temple itself could sit. It was surrounded with courtyards and porches and buildings all around the perimeter of this platform. There were chambers and passageways underneath. It was massive. And in the middle of all this was the temple proper, which was made of white limestone and gilded with gold. It rose above the platform to a height of an 18-story building. Uh, Josephus said that because of the white limestone, it looked like a snow-capped mountain. And it's no wonder, therefore, that this disciple said, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It was massive, it was majestic, it was beautiful. But Jesus says, its beauty and its magnitude could not save it from God's judgment. Don't you see these great buildings? He says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So, they're on their way out of the temple when Jesus has this interchange with this disciple and the other disciples who are with him. Then verse 3 says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and so he's looking back at the temple while sitting on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. So presumably just these four disciples were with them and they're sitting there just kind of reflecting on the day's events, reflecting with Jesus, reflecting on his comments about what's going to happen to the temple. And they say to him, verse four, tell us when will these things come about and what will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? So they want to know when all this is going to happen. When is this temple going to be destroyed? That's so shocking to them, right? It's so massive, so beautiful. It's the centerpiece of their worship and their life. And now Jesus said, because of God's judgment, it's going to be torn down. When will this be? And Jesus will eventually tell them in verse 14, what to look for, what the sign will be. But first he prepares them by telling them what will happen ahead of time leading up to those events and how they need to respond. So look at verse five. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, 
I'm he, and they will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, remember, what question is he answering? Well, he's answering, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this going to happen? So you have to hear the word end there in verse 7 in that context. So that's not yet the end. End of what? Well, end of the temple, which also meant end of the present order of things, end of the present age of things, particularly for the Jews and Jesus and the apostles, right? They're all Jews. What about the wars and rumors of wars? Well, during the first century, Israel itself existed in a mood of revolt. And this mood of rebellion and revolt con continued to be fanned into flame by a rising Jewish nationalism that longed to throw off Roman control. And during the decades of what we know as the New Testament period, there were numer numerous revolutionaries, there were sporadic revolts, all of which were put down with brutality by their Roman overlords. And those revolts came to nothing. And so that meant more rebels, more deaths, more threats, new governors, new revolts, and so on and so on over the decades of the first century. This is what Jesus is actually warning them about. And all of this erupted into a full-scale revolt in the mid-60s, 30-plus years from when Jesus is speaking these words. And the Romans came in force. They surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege to it for three and a half years. And then in AD 70, they leveled the city. They tore down the temple. They burned it all with fire. And it wasn't just like it was in Israel. When we talk about wars and rumors of wars and all of that, it wasn't just in Israel that we had that. It was all throughout the empire. In fact, look at verse 8. Jesus says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These things are only the beginning of birth pains. The Roman historian Tacitus actually describes the chaotic time period of the late 50s and 60s in the Roman world. And there was all these kinds of things that Jesus was talking about. Here's the way Tacitus puts it. That period, Tacitus says, was one rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or coming again after the lapse of the ages. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts, and even prophecies of the future. So for Tacitus, it's like, man, all of this, there was craziness happening in the Roman world during this time period. It was affecting Italy and Rome in a disastrous sort of way. The Jewish historian Josephus uses similar language as Jesus does here to describe the demise of Jerusalem and the temple. He actually, an eyewitness to these events, and wrote them down and recorded them for history. Here's what Josephus says, some of the, at least some of the language he uses to describe 
this whole revolt, rebellion, siege, and destruction of Jerusalem. He, he tells people not to be led astray. He talks uh, over and over again about wars. And uh, he, in fact, uses that word war 61 times in his description of this time period. Insurrections and revolts. He uses that word 24 times. He talks about earthquakes. He talks about famines. He talks about pestilences and terrors. He even talks about great signs in heaven above. And so this time period, by both um, Roman accounts and Jewish accounts, matches up with what Jesus said was going to happen. And so his apostles ask him, when will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed? And Jesus says, look, things are going to get really bad around here first. And that's going to go on for a while. And there will be people who... uh, claim to be leading the messianic charge, don't listen to them. They're actually going to lead people astray. Then he tells his disciples, and not only is it going to get bad nationally and internationally, it's actually going to get bad very personally for you. Look at verse 9. He says, but be on your guard for they will hand you over to the courts. You will be flogged, which means whipped with a, a, a cat of nine tails type whip. So you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. Now, read the book of Acts, and that's exactly what you'll see happening, both in Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean world. And so you'll see that stuff happening to Peter, James, John, Andrew, the Twelve, right? And Paul mentions plenty of other examples of this stuff happening to him that aren't mentioned even in Acts. And, and so that's what happens. They're going to stand before rulers. They're going to testify to Jesus. And then verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now, the word nations in Greek is the same word for Gentiles. The gospel must be preached to all the nations or all the Gentiles. Same word, and that's the idea. The good news that Jesus is king, the good news that God has installed his king, Jesus, and is now calling them into his kingdom is going beyond Israel, and it's going to the nations. It's going to the Gentiles, and that has to happen first, just as the prophet said it would. That's actually how the Apostle Paul understood his ministry, right? You can read, for example, in Romans 15, 23, how Paul will say he's accomplished the task in the eastern Mediterranean region where he's preached the gospel to everyone there, and now he needs to go to new territory. He wants to go to the west of Rome out towards Spain. Um, And so they're preaching the gospel to all the nations because that's what the prophets said needed to happen when Messiah came. And so know that that's what needs to happen. Then verse 11, when they arrest you, these governors and synagogue leaders, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for you're not the one speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus assures them, look, it's going to get bad for you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to stand before kings and rulers. You're going to have to give your testimony to them. Don't worry about what you're saying. The Spirit will enable you to speak the right words. Jesus goes on in verse 12 and says, and not only that, brother is going to betray brother to death. Father is going to betray his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. And so it's going to get really bad. There's going to be families turning against each other, all because some say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Others say not. And you will be hated by everyone, he says, because of my name. But It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That is, to the end of their life. The one who has endured uh, 
fully and finally. In fact, this phrase endured to the end or just the phrase to the end could often mean fully and finally. That's the idea that you have endured completely and totally all the way to the end of your life. And so we see Jesus is warning his disciples of what's coming, what's going to lead up to that time period when the temple and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So one disciple mentions how magnificent and beautiful the temple is. Jesus says, guess what? It's going to be destroyed. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they all want to know when is that going to happen? What's the sign about that? And what Jesus has said so far is that things are going to get really bad at the national, international, and personal level. But that's not yet the end of the temple and the end of Jerusalem. That's going to go on for a while. But they want to know what's the sign of the end. Well, now Jesus is prepared to give that. He's described that whole period leading up to it. What's going to happen? What's the sign of the end of the temple? What's the sign that it's about to happen? Well, verse 14 says, Now, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. And then he's going to go on and say, here's what you need to do. That's the sign. What's the sign that the temple's about to end? The, the abomination of desolation. What is that? Well, Luke actually is helpful here. He, as I mentioned, is the parallel passage in Luke 21 serves in some ways almost like a key. And what he does here is he frees up this phrase so that uh, non-Jews or people not familiar with the Old Testament could understand it. Here's the way Luke puts it, Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. That's how Luke puts it. And that kind of clarifies some things for us. This phrase, abomination of desolation, actually derives from the book of Daniel. And there was sort of an initial fulfillment of Daniel's words in the 160s BC. So in the 160s BC, there was a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes who defiled the temple, even sacrificing a pig on the altar. And that's sort of like a preliminary initial fulfillment of Daniel's idea of abomination of desolation. But that becomes like a paradigm or pattern for anything like that. And indeed, the chronology in Daniel chapter 9 actually fits with the Roman invasion of Jerusalem in the first century. And that's why Luke can free it up to make it clear that we're actually talking about an invasion by a Roman army that's like Antiochus did, but now a new one, in this case, the Roman army. And so when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is near. And the Jews of the day saw some specific events of this war as the desolating abomination, right? Like the zealots killing the priests in the temple during this whole revolt. Um, some said that that's the abomination of desolation. Or some said it was the Roman soldiers in the temple itself. But based on the fact that for Jesus, it's a sign for his followers to get out of the city and out of the area. And based on the way Luke frees it up, it's talking about Jerusalem's desolation at the hands of the Roman army. That's the sign. In other words, when you see the Roman armies beginning to build up and gather, you know it's time to flee. And here's what you must do. Look what Jesus tells them. When you see this happening, he says specifically to his followers in those time periods, he says, then 
You who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down or go back in to get anything out of his house. Whoever's in the field, don't even turn back to get your cloak, right? Contrary to normal wartime procedures, do this, Jesus says. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Normally, those in small outlying towns without walls would flee to the city, the walled city, for protection. Jesus says, don't do that. Get out of there. When you see the armies beginning to mount up and build around the city of Jerusalem, flee. And guess what? The, the followers of Jesus in and around Jerusalem, in Judea, did just that. There were no Christians, no followers of Jesus in Jerusalem when when the Romans actually destroyed the city because they took Jesus' words seriously here and they fled the area and went uh, actually east of the Jordan River. Now, Jesus tells them what to do. Here's the sign, abomination of desolation, the buildup of the armies, right? When that happens, you flee. And then Jesus says, but Woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Like, what compassion? Like, it's going to be awful for them that are pregnant. How are they going to flee? It's going to be a whole lot harder. If you're nursing a baby, that just adds a complication, right? Like, oh, woe to those who are in that situation. Moreover, he says, pray that it won't happen in winter, right? Like, the winter when it just made it so much harder to travel, when all the dry riverbeds were full of water, when the Jordan uh, was flooded. Pray that it won't happen then in the winter. And then Jesus goes on to give the reason why it's so important that they take him seriously and they flee the region. Verse 19, for those days will be such a time of tribulation as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now, and never will again. Notice that last phrase, never will again. That indicates that we're not talking about the end of time, right? Like there's history that's going to continue after this. We're talking about an event in the middle of history. And maybe you can hear the similar language to what Tacitus said when he was describing how awful the 60s were. And he talks about there was nothing like it from uh, the beginning of time until the ages passed right? Like Jesus says something similar. This is typical kind of expressive, expansive language for something that's just awful and terrible. And the accounts of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in AD 66 to 70, they're absolutely horrific. There's reports of the streets running with blood. Before the Romans even overran the city, there was infighting between various Jewish groups and they were killing each other off. There were bodies piled everywhere. Josephus even reports because of the siege and thus hunger and starvation, women uh, killed and cooked their own children for food. That's how bad it was. I mean, it was just awful. And so Jesus says, it's going to be horrific. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a terrible tribulation. That's why you got to get out of the city. In fact, it's going to be so bad, Jesus says in verse 20, that if the Lord had not shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened it. And so the Lord exercises his sovereignty over it and didn't let it go on longer um, than it did because that would have made it even worse. And then Jesus warns them, don't be deceived by people who claim to be the Messiah in those days because they're just going to lead people astray. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is. Don't believe it for false Christ, that is false messiahs and false prophets will arise. They'll even provide signs and wonders in order to mislead, if possible, the elect. But beware I've told you everything in advance. And so Jesus is warning them. He's saying, look, I've given you 
all these things that are going to happen. I've told you the thing to look for and when you need to flee. And I'm telling you now, don't listen to anyone who claims to be the Messiah and they're going to lead some charge against the Romans and, and defeat them and save the city and save the people. Don't listen to prophets who tell you, you know, that, um, hey, listen to me and I'll tell you what we need to do, right? Like, don't listen to those people because they're actually going to mislead tons of people. And if it were possible, they'd actually mislead the elect. But I've warned you in advance, so you know what's coming, so you should be prepared. Then Jesus goes on in verse 24 and says something interesting, something that sounds like maybe it goes beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. And so scholars have wrestled, what is this referring to? Here's what he says in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, so that tribulation refers to the tribulation he just described, the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. So in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this language could be literal. And God could cause literal signs in the sky such as this, right? God has that power. He's in charge of creation. Could be literal like that. But this kind of language was regularly used in the prophets of the Old Testament to describe the fall of cities and nations and what we would use maybe in English to describe earth-shaking events. When we say, man, that was an earth-shaking event, we don't literally mean there was an earthquake or the earth shook. It's a way of referring to like a some significant world-changing event. And this kind of language was used that way in the prophets. For example, let me give you an example so we can see this. Isaiah 13.10 describes God using the empire of Babylon to judge his people and it uses very similar language. Isaiah 13, 10 says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Notice, we're talking about you know, cosmic imagery, signs in the sky. But it's not literal. It actually refers to Babylon being used by God to judge his people. And I think that's the way we should read it here. So too here, just like with Babylon, God is using Rome to judge the Jews for their failure to live out their calling as his people. And so I think the best way to read this language is in the same uh, spirit, in the same context as the Old Testament prophets. That's just the way a Jewish prophecy worked. So the point would be that by virtue of this tribulation, Jerusalem and thus the people of Judea are going to be judged by God and their kingdom is going to fall. Uh, it will be destroyed. And so this is language of God's judgment on the Jews. And then verse 26 says, they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, again, could be referring to the second coming of Jesus, right? Um, and yet this language is actually coming from Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus is referring by this language to the picture painted there in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes on a cloud, but he doesn't come to earth. He actually uh, comes to the throne of God and he's given a universal kingdom. Here's the way it reads in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, honor, a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So it seems to me that if we're going to hear Jesus' words in the context of Daniel 7, and in the context of the specific topic that he's been talking about here in Mark 13, that what we're saying is the events of A.D. 70, right, the destruction of Jerusalem, evidence that Jesus was indeed the world's true king, the king from Daniel chapter 7, that he is the universal king overall, and that his kingdom needs to expand to every single people and nation and language and tongue. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, He will send, he being God, will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. Now, again, this could refer to uh, second coming language. Um, and it really depends on how we understand the word angel. The basic meaning of the word angelos in Greek is Angels, what we think of as angels, or messengers. The basic meaning is just messenger, and it could refer to heavenly messengers, what we call angels, or human messengers. Uh, and it's used both ways in Greek language and in the Bible. And so it, this could refer to angels, and if so, it sounds like then we'd be talking maybe about the regathering at the end of time, such as you see in Matthew 13 in Jesus' kingdom parables. Or we could be talking about messengers, human messengers, since the word is used that way. And then we'd be talking about the missionary activity of the church. And I'm just not sure which is the best way to take it. Uh, oftentimes, prophetic language sort of has sort of ambiguous meanings. Maybe that's the way to read it here. Uh, I tend towards number two, that in view of the fact that Jerusalem is destroyed, it evidences that Jesus is the universal messianic king, and that the um, effect of that is that God's going to send out his messengers and gather together his people from all over the earth. That, that's what happened, and I think that's what verse 27 is referring to. Now, then, Jesus goes on and gives a parable. And it's a parable that summarizes the point of what he's been saying in here in Mark 13 in this teaching. In this teaching, Jesus has given some indicators of when the temple and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he's told his people that you need to be ready for that so you can flee when you see it happening. Well, the parable here, beginning in verse 28, takes a picture language and says, so keep your eyes open for that. Here's what it says. Now, learn from the parable of the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and it sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. It does that in the spring and late spring. And so as soon as you see that happening, you're like, oh, it's almost summer, right? So you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he, or better it, I'll explain that in a second, is near, right at the door. Uh, and so just as the fig tree gives you uh, indication that summer is near, all these things I've talked about over the last 27 verses will, will is your clue that he or it is right at the door. And I say it shouldn't be translated he, it should be translated it. The ending of the Greek word there means either he or it. So it could be either one. And what has Jesus been talking about? 
Well, he hasn't been talking so much about a he. He's been talking about an it. He's been talking about the destruction of the temple, and he's been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's an it, not a he. Uh, and so translating it he um, really leads to the confusion uh, that this is primarily focused on the second coming when it's primarily about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we're talking here about the signs that Jesus has just given for them to get out of the city when the temple is going to be destroyed. That's the whole topic of this, this section. And so he says, when you see that, when you see the armies gathering, when you see all this stuff happening, you know it's getting close and it's about ready to happen. And as he just told them, that means you need to get ready to flee. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 30 to indicate that he's not talking about the second coming here. He's talking about what's going to happen in their lifetime because verse 30 says this, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so notice what he says, this generation. And indeed, within 35 to 40 years of Jesus saying these words, all these things that he's just said has happened. And so if you're going to make this about the second coming, then Jesus was mistaken, right? Like that generation has long since passed away and the second coming hasn't happened. But when you recognize the topic of the chapter is the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, well, then this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But Jesus knows of another day. He refers to another day that there are no signs for. Only God knows when it's going to happen. Not even Jesus knows when that other day is going to happen. And that's the ultimate final day. The ultimate day of the Lord, if you will. The great and final day. So look at verse 32. But about that day, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And so when it comes to these things, the destruction of the temple, when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, for these things, that's going to happen in this generation. And there are signs for that, like the fig tree, right? There are signs for that, uh, of the armies gathering and all of that. When you see that, you know it's close. But of that day, that final day, that ultimate day of the Lord, nobody knows. Only the Father knows. And so that contrast is really important. There are signs for when the wonderful buildings and stone will come to an end. But of that day, the ultimate day, only God knows there are no signs. Because of that, because for the final day, when that happens and there's no signs for it, we've got to remain vigilant, he says because you don't know when it's going to happen. And so verse 33, watch out, stay alert, for you don't know when the appointed time is. So of the destruction of Jerusalem and all that, signs, keep your eyes out, flee the city. But of that time period, no one knows. So you got to be vigilant. You got to be alert. It's like a man, he says, going on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning each one to his task, also commanded that the doorkeeper stay alert. Therefore, verse 35, stay alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, right? You don't know what time of day it's going to happen. Could be, you know, early in the morning, could be later in the morning, could be in the middle of the night, could be in the evening. You don't know. So you've got to stay alert, Jesus says, so that he, the master of the house, does not come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. 
And that's how this whole chapter ends. And so what we seem to get in this chapter is the bulk of it is about the the destruction of Jerusalem, the siege of the city, right? Uh, when you see the armies gathering, you know it's time to flee. That's your clue that it's right at the door. But at the end of the chapter, we get, but there is another ultimate day coming. And of that day, nobody knows. Only God knows. And there's no signs that's going to tip you off when it's going to happen. So you just got to keep your eyes open and be vigilant and stay alert. Now, as I noted in the introduction to this, scholars sometimes wrestle with, well, how do we sort out what's about the second coming and what's not? It's very clear, it seems to me, that the last few verses are about the second coming, that contrast, right? On of that day, there's no signs. Only God knows. And so there's a final ultimate day. And it seems like that's pretty clearly about that. What about scattered throughout Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple? Well, it's primarily and clearly about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. But in typical biblical prophetic fashion, oftentimes immediate events are blended with farther off our ultimate events, and it doesn't specify or make clear that there's a time gap between them. We see that, for example, with, say, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 and the prophecy of the virgin birth. When you read Isaiah 7, it's clear that the, the those words initially had some sort of fulfillment in Isaiah's own lifetime, but they point beyond themselves to a greater and more complete fulfillment in the virgin birth of Jesus the Messiah. And so I, I kind of wonder if Jesus speaks in that prophetic manner here, where even though the immediate focus is on the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70, and so much of the specific language is about that, I kind of wonder if Jesus speaks here with some vague language that even points beyond it, sort of like a Hebrew prophet that says, yes, here is what it's first and foremost about and going to be fulfilled in, but there are things about it uh, that are hard to sort out. And the reason for that is because Jesus is using maybe a little bit of double language that points forward to that ultimate and final day, which is why he ends with that. And so um, for the very first century followers of Jesus, they got the point. They fled the city. They weren't in Jerusalem. When they saw the armies coming, they took Jesus' words here seriously, and they fled Jerusalem. And yet there's a greater day, a more ultimate day of judgment, a final day of the Lord that's coming for which you and I, we need to be vigilant and alert because it could come at any moment.